All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 444. Jason Lingren is with me, and we have Wooden Nichols, which I will be calling Woody and Awar. Uh, everyone's probably familiar with the very long series that Awar put out. So many good ideas. When I first saw it, I saw things like his work on the prog clock. I, I thought I was the only one who had thought of these things, but lo and behold, there it was. What we're going to do here is these two guys kind of met. Um, they challenged each other's ideas, and instead of defending things that have kind of been shown to be fruitless, they adjusted, they accepted it, they moved on, they did what all of us are supposed to do. And believe me, I'm no saint. I've had to learn to go back and quit defending things that aren't worth defending. But there it is. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a beautiful good morning. It is. It's cold here. When when fake fall came on the 22nd, so did the cold weather. But let's jump in. Uh, welcome, Woody, and welcome, Awar. Thank you for having us. Yep. Thank you very much. Let's do the introductions. But before we do the introductions, why don't you guys go ahead and state where your work can be found. Uh, and if you want to give out a contact, like an email, I got to warn you, this is hour one. It can get overwhelming if you give out an email in hour one, but it's up to you. Yeah, so I'm on Wooden Nichols is my YouTube channel. I have a side project, WNTV Productions, which is a bit more comedy-based, but I always try to go for laughs. Uh, Not everyone thinks I'm funny, but I accept that. My email is WNTV2030 at gmail.com if you want to reach out. Awar? Yep, so I'm just on YouTube. Um, I've currently got two channels. One's an archive with some older videos. I might be adding a few more to that um, in the future. But yeah, primarily just on YouTube at the minute. Do you want to name them so people can find it? Yeah, it's just Ewa. Yeah. And that's A-E-W-A-R? That's the one. Yeah. It used to be just with the E, but uh, I made a bit of a comeback and I wanted to state there had been a bit of a change in the direction of my work. So I added the A for fun. Well, back to the future, right? That was the older way of spelling the word ether and a few other things, by the way. All right, Jason, anything you want to get in? I'm about to ask these guys to do the introductions on what they were doing and how they met. Is there anything you want to get in? Uh, Other than mentioning that this is going to be very important material to cover. Well, there's going to be a lot of Tartaria challenging, and that does not seem to be a very popular thing to the point where you and I actually did episodes with Wayne McCroy and we decided not to run them because we didn't have time to deal with all the blowback, which is probably a fault on our side, I might say, by the way. But you guys go ahead and tell us how you came to be known online and how you met. Yeah, I'll go ahead and start that. My journey into conspiracy coincided with the start of YouTube. So I've just been in all these subcultures of conspiracy for quite some time, much like a lot of the audience. So Crow, I've been aware of you since the lunar wave, filming the orbs in the Kim Sprain. And when I started my YouTube channel, I was there watching Tartaria videos. And I created that YouTube channel actually from a bout of depression I was dealing with. I wasn't doing anything for myself. I was working 12, sometimes 16-hour days and just doing nothing creative. And then one day I was just wondering, how are people making YouTube videos? Like, How are they recording their screens? I never looked into it. And then once I saw how easy it was and I had those programs, I would have been making YouTube videos forever ago. So I just jumped right in. 
And it made sense that I would cover Tartaria because that's where I was at in these YouTube subcultures. And prior to that, I had never researched it on my own. I was just listening to what other people were saying. And my first actual thought on the topic was, this seems really ridiculous. And you guys are stretching way too hard with this reset in the 1850s, this mud flood. But I started to drink the Kool-Aid after a while, listening to a lot of channels. So I jumped in, started making content based off it. Kind of right away, I was seeing there were some plot holes here and there, but just kind of glossed over them. And then I started getting shout outs from the bigger channels. And when I first started making the videos, I said, I'm not going to lean too far right. I'm not going to lean too far left. I was skeptical about being skeptical. But once I got those shout outs, I started leaning one direction, particularly. And that was in, in the Tartaria field. And then finally, just got to a point where I came across too much information. I was finding stuff people were saying doesn't exist. I was finding information that just contradicted everything that's being saying. And I just had to do a public pivot just to, to clear the record for myself. And I was convinced that was going to be the end of my channel when I did it. And it has kept going. And that has now led me to finding Ewar, who has a similar story. And I'll, I'll let him share that one. Ewar. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I released a, a collection of videos a couple of years back and um, I never actually planned to get into the YouTube research content creator game. You know, I made those videos as a way for people to get introduced to topics like Flat Earth or what many call Tartaria. And they were only really supposed to be introductory, you know, just a set of videos that covered both topics in a coherent way. And that allowed people to get started, like a kind of springboard for further research. In terms of Tartaria, I can't really remember when I got into the subject. I think it was a few years back. It was, it was still quite fresh. I started watching some stuff online. And I always thought it was quite cool and you know, interesting, but never really invested much time into researching into it properly until I set myself the challenge of making LHFE. And you know, with that, collection of videos. I wanted to keep it basic and introductory, but inevitably got wrapped up into looking into the subject in a much deeper way. And then getting out and about doing field research. Um, and I started that, I think, I think it was around November, 2020. Yeah, it must've been because I think the election was happening at the same time. So I've been in that subject now for, you know, almost two years and quite deep, but pretty much as soon after I released it, the LHFE series, I started to realize I've messed up, you know, but even before that, there were certain elements to the hypothesis, like the mud flood and the impossible architecture. There was something niggling at me. And I think it was because I couldn't reconcile them properly in argument, but it became very evident after I released it. It was just plain incorrect and it wasn't going to work. And I entered a little bit of a low, actually, during that, that period, um, because before releasing that, I was just relatively small, unknown channel, and I only uploaded so I could share these videos with people or not. Um, but then after that, it blew up, you know, quite unexpectedly. And in, in a way, it kind of felt organic, inorganic, is actually, it felt a bit unnatural, you know, it just, just blew up. So I entered a little bit of a weird headspace because I knew I was wrong. But I didn't know how I was going to correct it. So I stepped away for a bit. But, you know, still had that fascination with the subject, even more so, actually, because I was vigorously testing it, you know, testing the claims. 
I really wanted them to work. And I, you know, you go through what you would call cognitive dissonance. But at the same time, it's hard to tell whether that was the dissonance was primarily in relation to the subject matter or because I realized this thing's not working. So I came back with a volume two and my intentions were to slowly debunk myself, start challenging myself, start adding in the nuance and the complexity and crafting it all around this metaphor of a fall, you know, like a fall from the heights of awakening. That's what I wanted to do, but it became too much from a a writing stance. You know, I, I do like to write and it just wasn't working and people weren't really getting where it was going. I don't think. And that was bugging me. So I, I just crashed it down and did the pivot. And uh, yeah, here I am now. And I, I think the way I got introduced to Wooden, I hadn't heard of Wooden before the pivot, but he swung by in the comments section and said something along the lines of, um, Tartaria is like Las Vegas. You know, it's fun to visit, but not somewhere you want to stick around. And it, uh, yeah, we got in touch after that. And it's, it's been good. Well, well, there's the honorable seal on, you know, how, how I get, this got introduced to me, you know, early on, I made a rule for myself and I was very fortunate. Maybe I had a little guiding luck with me. I knew I was never going to join groups and that has served me well. And that doesn't mean I support all kinds of groups. I just don't join them because I don't want to inherit what the group as a whole thinks. And for me, it was mainly flat earth. As everyone knows, I accidentally shoot the lunar wave. A year later, I post it. And at the time, I didn't know. Actually, Jason and I didn't know until well into this podcast that 30 days later, the Flat Earth Movement kicked on the tail of the first lunar wave posting, and everybody was referencing the video. But that's one of the reasons I truly appreciate what you're doing, because it is not easy to put that much effort into making videos and other things, and then have people point out things that are clearly not right, and you find yourself defending them. So I just want to say good on you guys. Woody, where would you start this tale? I think the bullet point you provided me was leaving Tartaria. Yeah, so I actually had a pivot that I don't think a lot of people knew about. I did this series called Hidden Kansas, part one and part two. And in it, I was looking at the badlands of Kansas from my computer. I was like, hey, well, you know, these kind of look like ruins. And one of them is even called Little Jerusalem. Another one, I think, is like Castle Rock. And I was like, I bet they're they're rubbing it in our faces. So I did these two series on it, speculating that that's what they were, possibly melted. And then I did my first boots on the ground. I did a video called Hidden Kansas, the movie, where I actually bought a camera. I went out there. I filmed it. And I took a buddy with me. And he had a bachelor's degree in geology, you know, not super high up the ladder, but had some understanding of stuff. He's breaking apart the Badlands, showing me the shells in them, gypsum, anhydrates. And as I was there and seeing this stuff, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been seeing these are ruins. And it's very clear that that's not what they are. And I kind of like secretly pivoted in that video without just coming out and being like, oh, everything I said was was bull. But another part is I... And I admitted this on my channel, when I was real deep into the Tartaria stuff, I was actually producing what can only be described as propaganda. There was a video with the director, Warner Herzog, on RT talking about growing up in Nazi Germany and in the ruins of Nazi Germany post-World War II. And I was doing a video about World War II and tying it in how it was just one big cover-up of Tartaria. 
And I took a piece of his dialogue and made sure that I only had the part that where he worded it, where I could use it to spin it to make it seem like he was talking about Tartaria. And at the time I was doing this, I really just didn't care. I was like, well, I know what the audience wants to see and I'm just presenting it. And then as time went on, the big one for me was people were saying that Pennsylvania Station, the original one in New York City, there's no construction photos on this thing built my uh, built by McKim Mead and White. And I just kept looking and looking and looking because I found it really hard to believe that these construction photos wouldn't exist given the time frame. And then I found the whole entire collection of them on, I believe it was um, Columbia University's digital collections and like every stage of the construction. You could see train tracks, temporary train tracks lined all over the place, bringing in the materials. There was shots from on top of um, 34th Street, Macy's, and you could see right through the steel across uh, the Hudson River, seeing Jersey, details of Jersey on the other side. And that was the one where I was like, all right, I'm, I'm coming out and doing a full-blown pivot on this thing. Because at that point, enough was enough. I had seen enough evidence for myself that I just couldn't continue on with it. And then came the World's Fairs one after that. Because that's another case where people are just saying, well, hey, you know, there's not a lot of photographs of these World's Fairs. But, you know, when you search on DuckDuckGo or Google, of course there isn't. But when you start targeting digital collection archives online, you start to find massive amounts of well, photographic evidence. I would consider most people just push back and said, no, it's all fake. It's all fake. But even the people that push back on the photography, they it's very clear they don't understand anything about salt bromate. They don't understand anything about glass negatives. They don't understand daguerreotypes. They don't understand tintype film. They don't understand celluloid film with orthochromatic film, panchromatic film, lack of education or, or, or knowledge of any of that stuff. So I can't take any of their pushback serious. But the World's Fairs one, the big one for me that I uncovered is the... Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, which still stands today. It's, it's said in the Tartaria narrative that that's the original building that's there today. But after two minutes, and I'm actually kind of being a little genuine or nice when I say two minutes, it really only took about one minute to find out that that building that stands today in the mainstream's narrative was built in the 1960s with construction finishing in the 1970s. And that was like a real, just like, what? Like, how, how are you guys not even talking about this? I even got to a point where I was just cold calling uh, places in San Francisco to get people on the phone to confirm if that's their understanding of it. And for the most part, that was like all the library. And the person I spoke with was even like, yeah, there's a book on it. I've, I can go, I can go grab it and scan you some photos of it. And I was like, yes, please. So when I pushed that one, even then, you saw a, a lot of doubling down, you know, what politicians do when they get called out for potentially being incorrect, but they don't want to come out and say that, oh, they missed this information. It's, no, the internet's changing the information. Now we get Mandela effect. You get to pull the wild card. It's not that you did anything wrong with the research. It's that everything's being changed in this reality because you're on to too much truth. So that was then just like another kind of headache uh, along the journey, but it's like, okay, like, I, I can't go back to buying into a lot of this stuff that I've heard. And on top of that, it, at the end of the day, it just seems like it's it, Mudflood is a conspiracy on basements. And when you look at the world's fairs, which is part of this Mudflood theory, and I didn't even realize this until recently, there aren't basements at them. None of them. 
so it it kind of the tying in the world's fair as a part of mud flood actually debunks mud flood and there are buildings that were incorporated into like brookings hall at the louisiana purchase exposition in st louis that was a building that was already existing before that does have basement windows it's like a stone castle building doesn't match any of the neoclassical stucco and wood of all the other structures they built but yeah so that was just kind of for me the the end game of it all and just had to walk away and then that got me into noticing how the algorithms really push these topics and especially on tiktok this thing is completely out of control you've got tartaria videos in the millions uh Ewer and i were just doing a breakdown on our uh podcast volume number four of looking at world's fairs when you search it in youtube they come up right away so the algorithms actually want to promote this idea and i can let you jump in from there because you know he's kind of presented this idea that um, in a lot of ways, it is a leftist agenda. It fits the leftist agenda, this whole Tartaria notion. That's a key point. The search engines pick up, Awar. Yeah. And I mean, I just want to sort of uh, reiterate that it was a very similar thing with me of like, Woody, one thing leading to the next, you know, and it started to dawn on me when I was out and about doing field research. You know, you start to clock on to the big use of artificial stone of concrete, stucco, terracotta. And in Europe, we, you know, we have a large medieval architectural history that's still around. So you do have that stark contrast. And, you know, once you get up, you know, close to these structures, it becomes obvious that, you know, the ones that are very old and the ones that are built during the 19th century, there's all these things start to build up. And what happens is you start making excuses. You know, when you see carved lettering or carved dating, you might say, ah, the the controllers added that to throw us off. And it goes on like that, but then it gets harder and harder to justify. And what happened with me, the whole hubris of the, of the entire thing is thrown into sharp clarity because you realize you've been arguing from incredulity the whole time. And you don't actually know the history of construction or construction techniques. And then, then you start doing that research and it's like, okay, this is possible. And then you find the photographs and, and so on. And I really do hate to say it, but I, I think it's accurate. The, the Tartarian hypothesis and its advocates, including myself and, and Woody, have not debunked a single aspect of the historical narrative. And that, that's really worth sort of marinating on or, or repeating. It just hasn't debunked one single thing. So wait a minute. What you're saying is the mainstream narrative, you have not been able to poke holes in it. I think you can poke holes, but it, it's more like you're looking for absences. You're looking what could have been erased, what's been hidden. I don't think it can be debunked, not easily. And it certainly hasn't been debunked by the Tartarian hypothesis or its advocates. And that's because it's argument from incredulity and speculation. And it's speculation with a preconceived idea already in mind that the structure's were impossible and belonged to another civilization. And like Woody said, when you start looking at this hypothesis closely, and I really think that you can only do that unless you're, you know, you're very savvy and <laughs> smart, but only do it once you've been through it and you, you know how it works and you've, you've done both sides. You start to uncover this sort of dark side of Tartaria. And, you know, it does, it has very dark undertones. 
And we described it as a kind of Trojan horse that sneaks its way in and then unloads a payload of, of different agendas. And I think it's fair to say there are strong communist Marxist undertones that steeped in rich left-wing ideology. You know, not only does it propose a, a sort of globalist, one-world, unified civilization that's free of class and struggle, but it, it's also delivered the biggest cancel culture event yet. And it, it doesn't seem this way because it, it's not been legitimized by a, a sort of mainstream source, perhaps. But, you know, if tomorrow the newspapers were publishing stories about a radical group, let's say, you know, something similar to Antifa, declaring that all history pre-19th century is fake, um, you know, we need to rewrite it, then it would be seen for what it is. And that it's a radical cancel culture. It's, it's like radical revisionism. Well, actually, it's not even revisionism. It's, it's kind of historical negationism, just a complete dismissal and denial of an entire nation's histories, cultures, and then that drive to replace history with whatever you like. If you really look at it like that, it, it's kind of a mass online book-burning ritual. Because in the hypothesis, all the books have been declared fake. They don't, they don't need to be read or scrutinized or analyzed. They're just fake because everything's a lie. And Again, it's done this without debunking anything, really. It's got this real sort of Bolshevik vibe, you know, like that liberal historical policy of rewriting, reinterpreting, or dismissing whatever aspects of the narrative that are, you know, inconvenient or promoting the ones that are convenient to fit its sort of agenda and argument. And um, for me, again, once you've gone through it and you come out the other side, you start to see the big plot holes. And it hasn't debunked anything, but it's done a couple of things. And the arguments it makes are, on the surface, very you know, dreamy and enticing, but they're actually self-defeating arguments. So you know, the, the big one is the photographs. And you know, the hypothesis argues that the construction photographs are fake or have been doctored. But in making an argument, it, it, like that argument, it opens up itself as self-defeat. So for instance, if the 19th century construction photographs are fake or doctored, then how do you know other aspects of the photographs have not been doctored? For instance, the empty towns and cities, which are really just long exposure times on the early cameras. But, you know, if they could fabricate construction images, then why wouldn't they just doctor the city scenes to remove all the crowds of people to make it a nicer image? Because no one likes people photobombing there. Their photographs, you know. So it's things like that. There's no self-awareness of these pitfalls. And it's the same with the, um, the mud flood. Again, that's it's a kind of self-defeating argument because it's, it's aligned with this impossibility argument, you know, that these structures are impossible for us to build. But there was also a mud flood or maybe a different kind of cataclysm, like a, some people say a plasma event or a, a heat event that melted everything. But if there was a cataclysm that buried entire cities or destroyed so much, what we're seeing in the 19th century photographs, everything's been cleaned up and restored. So that means that who did that cleanup operation? You know, unearthing buildings, excavating canals, railways, changing the architecture and infrastructure to hide all traces of that alleged 
previous civilization. And that, that operation there is far more impossible than building the structures in the first place. So this is where the, the sort of dark side of Tartaria for me becomes, it becomes problematic because there is a kind of audacity or entitlement in the way history is treated in the hypothesis, but there's no self-reflection upon its own sort of plot holes in terms of its argument. You know, the, the underlying paranoia, and I see it all the time, drives, it is kind of a bit of a dark side, but what struck me, and you, that was also well said, I mean, I feel like I need to go back and listen to what you just said again already. Some of that's proven to good use like ancient aliens, right? Well, human beings can't do that. Clearly, clearly these other things we've never seen or don't know about it came and did that. And I had made up a joke once called the peanut butter and jelly sandwich conundrum to show how silly it is. I'm in the middle of the desert. There's a building there. There's dust everywhere. And I walk in, no one's around, no tracks. There's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the table. How did it get there? You know, that's the joke I made. Well, clearly we know human beings make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Um, but that was kind of a, a cheap shot. But underneath everything you're saying is the idea that somehow people challenging ideas and trying to improve what is known in a world where we know so much is just not right, uh, it's perceived as a fight. And I'm going to have to bring Jason in uh, because I know it is so difficult to get good search returns on the most basic things anymore. And that was one thing Woody brought to the table that I admired immediately because I know about these things. And he told me, oh, I'm going here and these other places because I can't get a good search return. And in a minute, I'm going to bring Jason in. He'll tell you, here's the problem. We've covered this in the AI episodes. If you're logged in and you have accounts, to some degree, you're an RC car. And I know people don't want to admit it, but I had to admit it to myself because I have accounts and I'm logged in. And what that basically means is a psychological profile has been made on you. And I'm using layman's terms. So what gets returned is never intended to be the best information. What's actually intended is algorithms are trying to determine what you will do next and to get as many clicks out of you as possible. That's the game now. And whoever creates the algorithm that predicts human activity the best gets paid the most. And in this, it is now nearly impossible for someone interested in Tartaria, if they are been in that vein, to get anything other than Tartaria is absolutely it. And we're going to show you all the reasons because we know we'll get another hundred clicks. You got a million minutes left in your life, and we're going to try to get every one of them from a search return. And this brings us, you know, in, in the same vein of what you were explaining, what Jason, I did. I mean, tell him, Jason. Um, oh, Rose just pinged me. So the AI episodes were 165, 168, and the Industrial Revolution episode was 178. But Jason, how difficult is it? I mean, you and I a week ago were talking about getting laptops that have never been logged on to anything. Uh, I mean, go ahead. Tell them what it's like now trying to do the research we used to do easily. Huge difference. I mean, we did how many episodes going back over six years now, and I would write I don't know, take me a couple of days and we would write episode after episode and pretty much having no problem with various uh, sources that we were pulling from. Now it seems like it's running you in circles. Uh, they know what's up. Like they've got this system figured out at this point. Now I'm curious what both of you guys think because uh, I know what I think. 
Do you think that that this is being pushed because it really is a a propaganda narrative, if you want to call it that, to get people spinning their wheels and wasting their time instead of looking at other things that might actually matter? I would actually go back to what you are was saying with the if an Antifa group came out tomorrow and just declared all history is a lie. You've got a Chinese professor at a major university, I think I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but Zhejiang University, I believe it is, who put out one of his live stream, live stream one of his classes. And in it, he said all Western history is falsified and that it's all meant to diminish the glory of China. And China is actually responsible for the Roman Empire. They're responsible for Greece, uh, the whole nine yards. And then when you look at Tartaria and where it shows up on a map, it is right there in between Russia and China. So it does seem like, you know, with the algorithms having a leftist approach, with those leftist approaches being aligned with Marxism, communism, and that yet you have Chinese communist, well, sorry, um, communist China pushing a very similar narrative to what's going on in the truther movement, it seems absolutely like they're tied together and it is purposely being pushed. Well, we should just throw in uh, for all us Americans who think we're so special all the time. Did you know, and you can go research this, that nine of the 10 communist pillars have been in place in the United States longer than I've been alive. One of the main ones that's often argued one way or the other is the right to just simply come take property Other people have pointed out they didn't need that pillar because of eminent domain and taxing and other ways they can get a hold of things. And I think what you just said, Woody, is so critically important because I know people in high places who claim that what's coming would be most closely aligned with some bizarre version of communism. And when you begin to think about this, but what what would you add, Ewar? Yeah, I mean, and also as well, the the Tartarian hypothesis is is predicated. It has its origins in um, extreme Russian revisionism. Anyway, the work of Fomenko and his communist predecessor, um, and like what he said, you know, it aligns very well with you know what communist China are doing and what they're pushing right now. So it isn't a surprise, I guess, that this. And actually, just to go back to the name Tartaria is. That to me is a very sly one because, and it's not coincidental, I don't think, because out of all the terms, the names, the labels that could have been chosen to designate this conspiracy theory, that's the one that gets picked. And because it's unfamiliar, it's enough to pass through. You know, not that many people know that Tartary was a European blanket term to describe Central Asia in the Middle Ages. You know, all we got to do is imagine if the hypothesis said, China or Russia, so one world Chinese or one world Russians, it wouldn't work. You know, no one would have bought into it or if they had, you know, checked out, there would have been opposition. So it's kind of quite sneaky, that Tartaria, that name. And it is worrying the way that it's exploded all over TikTok. And I didn't really know that until Wooden showed me. It was a bit of an eye opener. And I know that the advocates of the hypothesis argue that it's just used as a blanket term to describe, you know, this civilization or this act of investigating lost history. But I don't think it matters because you still have a situation now where the youth are 
going around and calling their history Tartarian. And I was actually very careful in LHFE. I never used that word Tartaria once. I didn't use it once. And that's because I wasn't comfortable using it. I wasn't comfortable reclassifying what I thought was a lost history as Tartarian because I know the narrative surrounding the Black Death and the decimation of Europe at the end of the Middle Ages. And it just felt inappropriate. But the thing is, is that, and it goes back to your, your point, Crow, about ancient aliens, is that the redemptive aspect to the hypothesis is the advanced technology argument. You know, that's, that's really the selling point. Everyone gets sort of, um, you know, bedazzled by that, that these structures could have been some kind or some form of advanced technology. But for, for me now, coming out the other side of it and seeing all these connections, it does read a bit like a grooming exercise to get everyone excited about the notion of advanced technology. And I've said it before to, um, to Woody that tradition, family, culture is not present or even you know, explored in the hypothesis. It's just a celebration or kind of worship of some kind of cosmic energy and advanced technology. And it's so obvious why this would be promoted by the algorithm. Because YouTube, um, you know, every, it's all full of this, the internet. They want people thinking like this. And it ties directly into the, the sort of incoming fourth industrial revolution push, the technocracy agenda. Um, so I, I do see it as the same as ancient aliens, you know, just in a different coat of, of paint. And it's a warming up exercise, I think, or benefits the warming up exercise to get everybody used to this idea of advanced technology. But there's, there's one thing that I, that I was kind of reflecting on about this. And I actually consider the, the Tartarian hypothesis a tremendous failure. You know, a lot about 2020 and 2021 was a failure, I, I'd say. But this one for sure, because, you know, we're living through the craziest time and there is a great awakening happening. And I personally feel that this awakening, well, I now feel this way, is being engineered deliberately. And there is a fourth industrial revolution coming, you know, whether we like it or not, whether it's going to be a really dark one, you know, dystopia or maybe a utopian one, who knows? But it, it kind of, you know, reminds me of that saying that kind of characterizes our zeitgeist of nothing can stop what's coming, it's coming. And Tartaria failed because we, the, you know, the truth pursuers or the awake, looked back at our past, our roots, and we marveled. But then we said, there's no way. We didn't do that. It's impossible. That right there, to me, was the moment of failure. It's just like a Shakespearean tragedy. There's this moment, you know, when the protagonist, the hero, undergoes a tragic fall and transforms, you know, into a kind of like a villain. You know, when Macbeth murders Duncan, um, for instance, you know, it kind of changes his character. Well, you know, like in, in uh, Breaking Bad, when Walt lets Jesse's girlfriend die, you know, from the beginning of that show, you're like rooting for Walt. And then that happens and you see a change. You see a callousness. He's not the same. He's fallen from his grace. That's a point of no return kind of thing. Well, in Tartaria, it was that moment that we said, there's no way. That's impossible. We didn't look back at our roots and see the stark reality of the matter. And that matter is that technology has been our downfall. You know, that to me, that's really the crux of it. We no longer care for craft. We don't use our hands in the same way. We don't take time. 
We don't have the same relationship with animals like we did with the horse. We no longer build like with the same care and, and uh, love, with the same drive to make things look wonderful. And that's not to say like, you know, we didn't have problems back then. We did. We had a lot. We had slavery, racial injustice, you know, child labor. But if we had just ironed out those issues and not pursued the trajectory of advanced technology, because that's really what the Industrial Revolution was, if we hadn't gone after it so hard and, you know, solidified globalization, then things may have been better. And it, to me, it was really kind of ironic with this always that, you know, what was one of the key inventions of that 19th century industrial revolution? It was the camera. You know, so we invented the very thing that could capture the last glimmer and twilight of that care, that slowness and love of labor that we once had. You know, we clicked the shutter and relegated it to the past forever. And then we got on with inventing the modern era we find ourselves in today. So to me, that's the tragic fall or failure of the Tartarian hypothesis. We did not recognize what we lost, but we thought it was all a lie and that the solution was more of the advanced technology that led to the downfall of how we used to live in the first place. So really, to me, that's, that's just how I see it. It's the crux of the whole thing and where my head is at, in, in, a, in a sense, because I can't help but see it as, as technology advances, we lose a lot. And in many ways, regress. That's not to say that, you know, technology doesn't make us advance in other ways. But there is something to say about that loss of tradition and skills. Yeah. So well put forth. And that the last part there uh, with the technology, it, it's true. It's just true. And for me, the problem becomes who controls it, who owns it. It's never designed for the good of all. It's always been someone with power going for as much as they could get away with. And to I'll put this on the table. If I had to venture an educated guess at what's actually ha happened to us over eons and eons and eons, I suspect, and this is just what I suspect, probably never be able to prove it. I suspect that we were higher and we've continuously fell lower and lower and lower and lower. That's what I suspect is correct. We can demonstrate, if we go back to the late 1800s, look at how many languages an educated person spoke. Look at their handwriting, how gorgeous it is. Look at the beautiful things they made from the labor you were just referencing. Um, we fell from even just that short time ago. But one of the things you touched on, you know, ancient aliens, I don't know how long, has it been around 20 years or something? It's never gone off the air. And not only has it never gone off the air, they take episodes they'd already made and re-edit them together and call them new to keep it continually on the air. And this is akin to the search engine. When, where we are now, if we see an algorithm regularly putting things forward, that's an agenda. And I think you've hit it on the head. It's a hard agenda to prove, but for those people who get how tech works, that's an agenda because those returns are controlled. But in the ancient aliens narrative is a mind screw because it gets the human mind to accept. I don't know how a human being couldn't have done that. A human being couldn't have done that. We could never do that. Yep. Some other advanced technology had to have done that. It's bad enough to think that way, but you've limited your own future by considering and accepting that a human being could never do that in the first place. And that brings us back to the peanut butter and jelly supposition, right? We have no evidence for others or, you know, all these other things they're attributing these buildings to. 
But before I hand it back, I want to touch on the Fomenko one thing. There was another guy that I covered way back called Hattie Bob, and I had to walk that back at double time. Hattie Bob had all these brilliant ideas, and it appeared that maybe some Russian researcher had been describing the lunar wave. And then pretty soon we began to realize he was telling everyone that this part of the universe got populated by thermoses that were brought by spider aliens. And I was like, oh my God, by the time we had it translated, because all these Russian speakers were helping me translate it. And so then I had to walk away. Fomenko is a similar thing. As I was looking at the Fomenko that was translated, there were all these great ideas, but it's like all things. The further you look, the further away from level you feel like you're being pulled. There's a part of this narrative that really ties in like with the way you were saying with the, with the modern leftist uh, propaganda aspect to it. Is this massively, highly technological empire worldwide supposed to have been defeated by evil white men from Europe with muskets? I don't think anyone really, I mean, because there's the, the melted building theory, which is, I forgot the terminology they give it that wiped everything out, uh, the X Factor event. Um, I don't think, yeah, anyone's really nailed down any good reason for why it just disappeared other than cataclysm. And that's another great thing that you are brought up that it does in some kind of ways tie into the whole climate change agenda, that it, it's another coat of paint for that one. Yeah. And I would just real briefly go back and just mention that with the oral history that we do have, which isn't a lot, it's that the generations before us, especially the further you go back, were really tough. And the current one is much softer. And you have the current one looking back at the tough one now and trying to erase that oral history and saying they couldn't do anything because they didn't have the internet. They didn't have trucks. Good point. So that, again, ties into that cancel culture aspect. That's the whole selling short of humanity as a whole. Like People look at something like, oh, they couldn't do that. No, you couldn't do that because all you do is sit around and look at TikTok all day. This is the whole premise of ancient aliens. But Edward, I wanted to ask you, so many brilliant ideas in that first long, long set of clips you made for YouTube. Some of them, uh, I thought, wow, like, like the prog clock I keep coming to. But where are you on the idea of free energy having come so far in the research from when you first made that? Have you changed your view on the idea that they were pulling free energy out of the air or have you modified it in any way? Yeah. So on that one, I've, I've definitely modified that. Again, it comes back to this, you know, one thing leading to the next. So I started to realize that a lot of the domes and spires are made out of wood. And, you know, we've also got, you've got Notre Dame burning in uh, 2019. So I was thinking, okay, it couldn't have been any, you know, really high, powerful form of energy circulating around these buildings. However, where, where my head's at with it now is, and it's, it's very complex and a bit of a pleasure actually to research is because I've discovered that there's so much artificial stone or what I call sort of pseudo stonemasonry techniques is that I've been trying to locate potentially the real ones. And there is a whole body of literature that talks about the cathedrals and, and their mysteries. You know, I'm thinking of Falconelli and a couple of other French writers, but then also it's there in, um, uh, Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco. And it goes back to this sort of Celtic um, tradition of the menhirs, the big stone blocks they were put in the, in the ground. And that over time, things like the cathedrals replace them. 
And that actually what they were trying to tap into was the telluric currents, which are under the ground. And that the telluric currents are kind of uh, mirrored in the heavens above. And there is something to that. And I have been able to find direct evidence. And there is also a massive connection with water and the idea of a holy well inside these structures. So I think it's Chartres Cathedral in, in France has directly under, in the crypt a well. And this well goes all the way down to the waterbed and it's about 32 meters deep. I think some say 33, you know. <laughs> but okay. it goes all the way down. And I've, I've been going to Holy Wells and this idea of there being an energy underneath. And to lower it currents, it isn't a pseudoscience, you know. So there is something to it, that's for sure. But then you have this problem, and this is where the Tartaria hypothesis, you know, it's, it generalizes everything. There's no nuance. But you have this problem of there being a, what I like to call like shadow structures, you know, so over time, people have built other cathedrals. You know, some of them are created out of artificial stone and, uh, you know, been mass produced, block cut and whatnot. And uh, uh, kind of the research I'm in now is this, taking this the metaphor of the labyrinth and trying to find the real ones. So, you know, like Chartres Cathedral would be classified as a, a real legitimate medieval structure that potentially worked with some kind of energy primarily from below in a ritualistic manner. And then, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that you find the icon of the, uh, the virgin um, mother down by the well or the black virgin. In yeah, some the case. black virgin. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely something to it. Not everything I presented in the original series is a dead end. And I think it's water. And I think there is something very, very, very special about the medieval cathedrals. I am with you. If someone talks to me about it, that is the height from my point of view of beauty, function, and a spiritual message beyond anything else I'm aware of. And you, you cited Falconelli, so I know you know some of the sources that I've looked at. A lot of people want to dismiss Falconelli because there was an alchemical idea that when you got to a certain level, you tended to take on a Latin name, but it was not for the reasons one might think. They think it's about bragging. I think it's more about like the reason I call myself pro is to not be famous. It's don't look at me, look at these ideas. They are the biggest deal ever. Um, no, no famous personage could raise to a higher status than these ideas. That's what I see in it. But it's so interesting, the energy thing, because we all know when we go out in the world, look at nature. It never needs a new charge. It never needs another tank of gas. It never needs anything. So we subconsciously know that that permanent energy, if we play by the right rules, must be attainable. People will cite Tesla and other places, but I want to get this in. The Dark Ages always drove me crazy because I look at Chartres, I look at Notre Dame, and I stand in awe of not only what they represent, but the functionality that was built into them and the just sheer gorgeous beauty. And yet we're told this is a product of coming out of the dark ages. I used to ask the question, well, if we had a dark ages, where was China? But one of the things I don't know if you guys are aware of, did you know 
that that upper part of Notre Dame, they burned. I think they called it the forest because it was all made out of oak or something. They finished laser scanning that just months before they burned it down. But my point that I want you guys to address is what about the dark ages? So we're supposed to have had these dark ages and the most beautiful things that I've ever seen in my life are a product of that time, kind of. Yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating to me. It's, it's actually part of my current research. I mean, that's the one thing that Tartaria did give me is a uh, fascination and, you know, a passion for architecture. And um, the Dark Ages to me are a complete mystery. But everything about that time period, you know, even the Gothic, you got that transition. It's not really a transition, but you have the Romanesque cathedrals and then Gothic just springs out of nowhere. And it coincides with all the, you know, the Knights Templar lore. And it does really spring out of nowhere in France. At the same time, all over the country, all these Gothic structures start going up. And some of them fairly quickly, you know, in terms of the, the time period. Now, I don't subscribe to the idea that they're impossible. I know they're very, very possible. And I've, I've spent time going around to them and looking at the Mason's marks. And, you know, it's brilliant. But one thing that that tells me that they all sprung up at the same time and what the research is kind of yielding is that there was some kind of order of builders that were trained and, you know, when the time was right, they did it because this just, it just comes out of nowhere. And they really do the cathedrals to me and the dark ages really does kind of epitomize the, you know, the occult, the hidden, the occult sciences, like you said, the, the alchemy and, it's fascinating because I, I do think of this idea of technology, not necessarily advanced technology, but, you know, as a, as a kind of science as well. And, you know, maybe that something has been occulted or hidden. Maybe it's dangerous. Maybe, you know, it's, we can't know. You know, I think it's quite a simplistic mindset to think that the controllers have just hidden everything from us or, you know, kept it from us because, you know, they're evil, but that might not be the case. You know, it could be that some things just can't, fall into the hands of society you know otherwise it could be extremely dangerous but i do feel like with the cathedrals they did encode some kind of occult knowledge or higher knowledge there and how they came about it i don't know you know most of it's been absorbed into law you know the templars and the the temple and stuff so yeah fascinating there's so much and i'm gonna have to start wrapping up but i I gotta get this on the record but the masons you're talking about these skilled masons and these men or women or whoever they were, they have my respect for being craftspeople at the highest level. It is amazing. But what happened with masonry? Those were what they were called practicing masons. In other words, they cut stone. They designed things. They built things. What do we have now? Speculative masons. So even that has been falling with everything. And I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that there was and still tries to be a path to how to become a higher human being in glass and stone. And as Falconelli and others showed, they have been working night and day to remove things like the St. Christopher holding baby Jesus in the front of these things all dragged out back and smashed. But I think we're at the top of the hour and we got a whole nother hour to get into these things. It's an absolute pleasure talking with you guys. You're no nonsense. And you're serious about what you do. So I appreciate it. Uh, Woody, can you give us one more time where people can find you? Yeah, it's Wooden Nichols on YouTube. And just, yeah, we, we are 
open-minded to the idea that there is a lie about history. We're just switching up on this one because we think it might be a distraction. All right. Awar, can you please tell folks where they can find you and your work? Uh, yeah, just on YouTube, Awar, A-E-W-A-R. Okay. Just so people know, on Awar's work, there is a very long, famous series. What's the, what's the proper title on that series, Awar, the first one you did? Uh, well, it was the second one, but it's The Lost History of Flat Earth. All right. So that's the one that's been referenced through parts of these conversation and the modified thinking that he's been laying down. So if you go and these are very well put together, there's a lot of interesting ideas. I'm going to bring up more in hour two. Jason, I know we're up against it. Anything you want to get in before I wrap hour one? Well, I just want to point out the fact that people really need to use critical, critical, critical thinking with a lot of these topics. If indeed there were a lot of buildings or or leftovers from an older civilization, somebody somewhere, for instance, while the West was being expanded in the United States, should have come across something and reported on it. Because this is at a time before all of the newspapers and all that were a completely controlled narrative. And there isn't anything. No one has ever put something in the family Bible or a journal or even a small town newspaper. So just consider that. And there's a lot more we could add to these notions in our two. We will. And part of the problem here is the paranoia creeps in because as of 2020, very few people are willing to consider that there aren't some pretty dark minds trying to pull off some pretty dark things in this world. And it adds to the paranoia. Problem is, is the paranoia when you're researching that has to go away. And then there's other problems like I cite it all the time. Napoleon Bonaparte, who probably if he existed anyways, the way we think he did probably knew some things. What did he tell us? History was a lie agreed upon. And that's not hard to prove because history is nearly always written by one side, the victor. In other words, half of the story is almost never told. And all these problems that we're faced with now that people are coming back to an awakened state and reaching for the stars, hopefully soon, um, these are some of the hurdles we have to come to. And as I sign off, hour one, if somebody challenges things and tries to present evidence or however they're doing it, those should not be fighting words. Those should be calm, sit down, examine what's been offered. That's what should happen in that time. And that's how it used to be, right? In science, even though you could say they were all part of the same group, one guy would challenge something he'd publish out to the whole community. And then the whole community would either kick it apart or adopt it. These ideas are also another thing that is suffering from the online kind of paranoia. And lastly, if an algorithm keeps returning you the same thing, that should be grounds to be suspicious. Search engines are not interested in giving you good information. They're interested in stealing every second of your life. We've done episodes on this. That brings hour one of episode 444 with Jason Lindgren, Wooden Nichols or Woody, and AWAR to a close. Hour two is at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com for members. Lastly, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing.